Hello and welcome to Baron Talks. I'm Chancellor Ralph Ford. And today my guest is Sam Epps, a 1995 Penn State Baron graduate. Sam, welcome to the program. Thank you, Dr. Ford. Glad to be joining you today. Well, thanks for joining us, doing it remotely. And, uh, you know, I'll just do a little bio so people know who you are and where we're going to have this uh, great discussion today. Sam is a 1995 Baron graduate. Right now, he's in the Washington, D.C. area. He is the political director of Unite here, Local 25, the Union Hotel, Restaurant, and Casino Workers Union in the Washington, D.C. area. Not only that, Sam is really active not only here on the Barron campus, but uh, Penn State-wide. He's a former member of the Penn State Alumni Council, and right now he's on the governing board of the Penn State University Alumni Association. You earned your bachelor's degree in political science here at Barron, and uh, you were involved in Student Government Association, active on our Multicultural Council and the Black Caucus. And in 2020, you and your wife, Sabrina, created a scholarship for students who come to Barron from underrepresented communities for which we are deeply, deeply grateful. So thank you. And again, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dr. Ford. Well, let's uh, let's talk. I like to always start out. You know, you're part of our Barron community, and that's the whole point of this uh, these interviews is to talk to interesting people in our community. Your first uh, experience at Penn State uh, was actually through Barron. If you can think back to when you were in school, and it was a, an enrichment program. So, why don't you just tell us a little bit? How did you end up at Penn State and Barron, and what were your early experiences? Yes, this has been a 30-year love affair. I actually became connected to Penn State Barron, as you mentioned, through a summer enrichment program in high school. I was a junior in high school, and and Barron was looking, I think this is before the foresight of of STEM education. I I was in high school at Erie Tech, and I was uh, in electricity electronics, and I, I thought I was going to be an engineer. And Barron had this program to bring students in the summer who were considering going into engineering, you know, what type of engineering. And so uh, they said, you do this summer program, take, you know, one course uh, your junior year, and then another course your, your first course, you take it. I think I took a math. Uh, course during that summer, you get a B or better, you have automatic admission to, to Penn State Barron. And so I look at that as opportunity. And um, I knew that I was going to go to school in state. And so when the opportunity came, I, I, I jumped on it. And it's, it was probably the best decision I, I, I made joining the Penn State family and the Barron family 30 years ago. It was the best decision I made. Well, you know that program you, you talk about, it's really gratifying to hear this because we essentially continue it till this day. You know, it's gone undergone different names and slight changes over the years. And we always had, you know, you made me think we've always had a really nice relationship with Central Tech. And now, of course, it's changed in Ethereum High School and there's uh, a whole lot of changes going on there as well. But over the years, so many talented students like yourself came to us from Central Tech. Many in those engineering tech technology programs, whether you ended up in engineering or not. And I personally worked with some of those faculty down there who were always really passionate and committed to bringing young people like yourself. So they, they make a difference in your life, don't they, your, your early teachers? Yeah, absolutely. I had great teachers in high school, mentors, coaches, 
Um, you know, I'm from Erie. I grew up on the West Bayfront. And so it was an area of where families took care of each other. And so to this day, I have a basketball coach that lived, you know, a block from where I grew up. They still live in the same house. And so those types of relationships to me are very important, and they're still important to this to, to this day. Even when I come back to visit, I make sure I get down to the West Bay front and see those individuals who have been a part of my life, my family's life, and who have been inspirations and mentors to me. So I think you you started your Penn State career after after that summer program at I believe a University Park. You ended up back here, but I just like to hear you know did you. And did you start in engineering? It was a journey. I think, you know, you always growing up think what you want to do and where you want to be in 20, 30 years. And I, I thought it was engineering. So I, I started down that path to, to engineering, got to, to University Park, and it just didn't click for me. I think, you know, there is a thing that you should do what you're passionate about and gratifying. And so I, I just didn't see myself in that type of role. And, through, and so I think how I got to political science is through my involvement, my involvement at, on University Park campus and, and student government and organizations like the NAACP and the, the Black Caucus down at University Park. And then really when I got back to Barron and, and transferring, back to Barron, and and it it was out of not being disciplined, right? And, you know, there's a lot of things that go on at at University Park that, you know, takes your focus off the ball. And I just felt it was very important to get back to a place where I could really focus in and and keep the promise that I made to my mother uh, that I was going to graduate. And so, you know, I, I bounced around. I was, you know, started in engineering, thought I was going to go into business. But really my activity and involvement on both the University Park campus and also on the Penn State Barron campus is what led me to political science. Uh, it, it just it just clicked for me there. So were there any, you know, we've got a, a tremendous political science department here, a lot of success stories and, uh, you know, some really inspiring faculty. Were there any in particular you were close to? Yes, I, I think I, I call them the big three. They started uh, in the infancy of that program, and that's uh, Dr. John Gamble, uh, Dr. Zach Irwin, and then, you know, my fave is Dr. Robert Spill. You know, me and him still connect with each other. When he brings students down to the D.C. area every year, I really try to meet with those students, bring them over to our office, talk a little bit about what I'm doing, talk about the union movement. So I consider those three as the program has now built out and is much more interdisciplinary with with women's studies, communication, you know, in in there with the political science program and, and some other things that are happening in a political science program, but I consider those are like my top three right there of professors. Well, you know, it is, they they were all hugely influential. And uh, while two of them have retired, they, they remain in touch with us. I hear from John Gamble quite often. And as you know, Dr. Spiel is a very active faculty member here, a longtime student favorite, and for good reason. <laughs> 
he's a, you know, he's won a lot of university teaching awards. And like you said, each year he's got this great program where he brings students to Washington, D.C. to see political science and democracy in action. Yeah, and um, I try to share from my angle of how our union worked to be a part of that democracy and workers having a voice in democracy and how the economic and social justice connects with that. So it's always a, a pleasure to, to have those students down here. And I, I hope soon we will get started. The, the pandemic knocked a lot of that travel out for students, but uh, hopefully we, we can see them in D.C. soon. Well, we will hopefully have them there. I think it's usually in the spring, but let's switch back. I, you know, I want to come back and talk about your experiences and what you're doing right now, but I just wanted to paint the picture a little bit or get your perspective. What was Barron like when you were here in, uh, you know, the early 1990s and uh, you were very active in the Multicultural Council, which still exists. A very active group in the Black Caucus. So, you know, what were you, what were your experiences back then? You know, I was on campus in Barron's growth stage, and and I know it's still growing, but in the really sort of what I would say the foundational stages of Barron and in that growth stage. And so, it was a campus that really drew students from all over, you know, not only Pennsylvania, but New Jersey, from New York, mm-hmm. um, and also some international students from Puerto Rico, and then our international students. And so there was a sense of what the Multicultural Council was to create um, a space, a space for those students who could identify with each other, being far from home, from New York, New Jersey, or wherever distance that they came from, that there was there was a space that there was a family atmosphere where they could have support, build friendships. You know, many of many of my friends that I worked with on the Multicultural Council, we're still friends today. It's a 30 years, you know, friendship. Mm-hmm. And also it was a space for students from the diverse background to also not only be seen, have support from each other, but also to create a voice on campus and also to program together, right? And to program on issues that were early on in NCC. I remember, you know, one of the groups was Trigon, which is the LGBTQ group on the time. It may have changed its name now to a new name, but that was the emphasis of that group. You know, we had a commuter council, right? Because we have a large population of students who are commuters. And actually, I was a commuter student. I, di- I didn't live on campus when, when I, I was there. And, you know, Nesby and Olas, right? The Latino mm-hmm. students. And so we took issues and concerns that we had together and really try to work together as one voice to be seen, to be heard, and to have a space to belong and to know that we all belong at Barron. And many of, of those students were, were first-generation students, right? The first in their families to graduate. I was the first in my family to finish at a four-year institution. So many of us had commonality there, and we really sort of brought it together and really did a lot of good programming, not only 
for ourselves, but the, the, the campus as, as a whole, where we could have these, these discussions as well, too. You know, listening to you describe that, first of all, I got here in the early 90s, and you're, you're right, those were really formative years for the campus in so many ways, while we continue to grow, there was, but you really set the, the stage, because all of those things you just said, they apply to MCC and OLAS and all those organizations today. And they remain one of our most active student groups here on campus, very visible. We've got a nice home uh, right in the center of our student union. So still meeting that mission that you and others set out to create so many years ago. Yeah, I'm glad I came up and, and I went in. Students weren't there, but I, I saw the space, very proud of the space, saw that there was new, new organizations like the Caribbean Student organization and some other ones. So really, it made my heart proud to see our vision of when that started or in the infancy just grow and students to be able to benefit from that today. And our campus is still working and discussing the issues around diversity, equity, and inclusion out of that space. So it's been, I'm very proud of that. As you should be. Now, you served in in another large role when you were here, and that was Student Government Association President. You were SGA President here on campus. So that's representing all of our students and student organizations. And do you remember what were the key issues back then that you were working on? Yes, we were working on, and I'm sure you have this today, but one of the main issues was, you know, student groups are looking to program and certainly remember as the SGA president looking at funding, right? And how do we fund uh, student groups in a way that not only was equitable or to have enough funds, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you would we would get budget requests for $300,000 and only had like $150,000 to give. And so one of the main issues that came out of that was, and you have it today, and I advocated at uh, CCSD, the Council of Student Governments, was a student activities fee. Barron was one of the first that implemented a student activities fee to help with programming, not only the programming for colleges, but also programming of student groups to be able to create and help students engage and fulfill the missions that their their organizations have. So that was one of the issues. I think, you know, across the board, we always dealt with the way faculty, diversifying the, the, the staff and those, those types of things. So I, I see that those are were, were some of the major issues, but I think what we really did around the student activity fee is what has, again, set the foundation for what Barron and, and the student groups are, are doing today. That was far seeing, actually, and that process still works really well, and it funds student groups here on campus, and it was later followed by the student facility fee, which helps with facilities, so that was really forward-thinking. Let's talk a little bit about your time after Barron. So you studied political science, and was your aspiration to to uh, run for office or be involved in politics? Did you ever think about running for office? So my resume doesn't say this, but I have run for office. I've run for local county council office in the county, placed fourth in a, in a race to represent my district. That itch is done. 
I actually, when I finished my degree at Barron, I thought I was going to come and work on Capitol Hill. That was the goal, the mindset that I would go and work on Capitol Hill. But actually, after I graduated, I did a few years in the nonprofit sector with United Way in Erie and Syracuse, and then moved from upstate New York to D.C. But once I, I moved to D.C., I actually left, left all my belongings in storage box and went out to Chicago, where I worked on my first political campaign. And so that is sort of where the bug started uh, there. And and once I I finished on that campaign, I moved back to D.C. and started to engage in politics on on a party level. And then I I dabbled in, um, not dabbled, I, I did some political fundraising. From that political fundraising stop, it led me to working in the Maryland General Assembly as chief of staff to a a state delegate out of Baltimore City who was the chair of the Baltimore City delegation. So uh, I was the chief of staff to the delegation, which was 29 House members and Delegate Salima Marriott's chief of staff. So So that was Salima Marriott. Is that that who you were chief of staff for? Yes. Okay. So you've been involved in in a, a few political campaigns, at least. And I saw like uh, Martin O'Malley's gubernatorial campaign and sure many others. And I always find it fascinating because there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes of a campaign that we don't all know. And uh, sometimes you see campaigns either do well and sometimes they implode. You know, I won't name any names. And I'm not saying yours did, but you find out underneath, like they just weren't well organized. You know, they put on this great public face, but they didn't have the fundraising or the messaging and I don't know. I'd just love to hear some of your experiences. Do you have any stories or wisdom that you've learned there? Yes. Campaigns are controlled chaos. And I've had the opportunity to work on campaigns in Pennsylvania, Indiana, Ohio, Virginia, and and sort of my three surrounding jurisdictions here, Maryland and, and the district. And I think a campaign is as good as it's candidate. You know, you can have some of those flaws with candidates, but if you have a good campaign infrastructure, you can get over the hump there. And and some of that is with messaging, but I think I am a field guy. And when we say field, those are the, the folks, you know, we're not raising money. We are sort of the ambassadors for that candidate. We are going door to door. We are doing events across whatever district. We are finding supporters for that individual. And so what I think has happened in campaigns since I started and where we are today is they've moved from sort of that field door to door, talking to voters, meeting your neighbor at the grocery store, talking to individuals that doesn't always agree with you on issues mm-hmm. where we can agree to disagree. You may agree with me 50% of the time, but if you don't talk to that person, that person thinks you and them have no similarities or agree on issues that are important to them. So they just they think you sort of discarded their thoughts or their engagement in this this thing we call democracy, right? And Mm -hmm. so if I advise anybody and what I always look at a campaign is I like to work on campaigns who are going to invest in fields, right? Who are going to put up 
who are going to hire organizers on the ground. And I would tell any candidate before you think about putting it in mail, social media, digital types of stuff, what does your field program look at? Because you can move an election one to two points with a good field operation. And so if you if you're trying to get to 51% of the vote and it's tied at 49-49, a good field operation can get you to 51. Well, in today's environment where we see so many elections right now are so close, you know, that one to two percent is the difference. It is. And you but you you touched on a point that you know I think is really important for people to understand. And that's Everything is becoming so politicized. People don't speak to others. I hear this far too often. We all know it. Who don't agree with them? And you're arguing that that's what the that's that's the difference in getting out there. Yeah, absolutely. And and I'll I'll take you know my experience at Barron in a class with Dr. Spill. We we had I've had individuals in in that class and classmates who was on the other side. They they were more conservative than, than I was. Right. And to this day, we still try to get together down here in D.C. They're down in D.C. as well, too, because I think in in that opportunity of that of, of the class that we may not have agreed on that issue. There are some issues that we agreed on that and we we sort of intellectually thought that out in the class. And so and I think there's some respectability about that. Mm-hmm. OK, I, I, I get get your point. And so that person, you know may drop me a note and say, hey, let's go, let's go to the baseball game, right? Or, you know, are you going to a Penn State watch party down here? And so today you may not find that around because it's so politicized, but I, I take that back to sort of what I've, I've learned at Barron and in those classes where we, we had to debate our, our position. So Sam, let's talk a little bit about the scholarship that you've created uh, and the impact that it has from your perspective. You know, what's the impact for the students and for the broader Barron community? Yeah, I touched on this a little bit. For me and for my wife is to connect, get closer connected to individuals in the Erie community, but I would answer it this way. No matter what side of the track you were born on, what location in, in the country you lived in, your gender, your economic background, that we wanted this scholarship to represent to individuals who receive it that they belong that Barron and, and that they belong that Penn State. And for the broader community, what it does is it adds so much value to that of having students from an international student from from China here, uh, someone from Puerto Rico, someone who grew up in Queens, New York, you know, someone who grew up in rural Pennsylvania, coming together and experiencing educational matriculation and intellect. And it really not only brings those different backgrounds and and traits of, of all of our stories together, it creates a better world, right? That's what we're trying to do. And and as we talk about right now in the midst of where our democracy is, you know, you it's very good to have a campus that you can have those not disagreements but but backgrounds where we can learn from each other mm-hmm. in this democracy, right? And I, I, we talked a little bit about this earlier is is we need to talk to people 
who are outside of our comfort zone, right? And so, so it's very important that I, I had that classmate who was not the same ideology of myself politically, but we were able to debate that in class, but then we were able to go watch the baseball game together, right? That, that is the community that, that we want to build here. And that's what we're hoping this scholarship does and hope that that's what it brings to our campus is a, a campus that is, is more, more diverse and, and it begins to, in a very small way, because I know there's larger issues going on that, that when people leave Barron, that their relationship is not with just one type of people. They have a diverse friendship across the Penn State family, and that's what we want to do. Well, thank you so much for that, because it does add, not just in a small way, but uh, in a large way. And that's what college, you know, university education is all about, bringing together people for a diverse set of perspectives, or maybe not all about, but it's a really important aspect. And one is, like you said, can we talk to each other, even though we disagree? And increasingly, people cannot. We need to reverse that. Future of the country depends on it. Absolutely. It is, even in, in, in my work, I have to talk to the other side of the aisle. You, you still, still practically, you know, to, to get policy or legislation, you, know, you have to talk to everyone. And, and I think we want this scholarship to be a beacon of that, that we are, we are bringing in a diverse students from diverse backgrounds to Barron. And, you know, my wife and I had, diverse experiences in our educational. She went to a historically black university in, in Columbia, South Carolina, but it was very similar to Barron in terms of size. Her campus sat right outside of the University of South Carolina. So she understands, you know, our two different educations, but very similar in a way. And so we certainly want to be able to provide that for future generations of students to have and to meet students from many, many backgrounds. Well, that's, uh, you know, I, I think it's a really important lesson and it's great to see that you, you continue those relations. Let's switch to your, your current job, which is political director of Unite Here Local 25. So, you know, why don't you tell our, our, our listeners, first of all, what is Unite Here 25? And love to hear what you do. And, you know, what are the things you advocate for as political director? Yes, I work on behalf of workers who work in hotels in the D.C. Metro Washington area, which is D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. And these workers are in classifications as um, what I say, when you think about a hotel, think about the classification bellman, housekeeper, cooks, food and beverage. You may go to a hotel that you're at an event and someone's serving you, houseman. So those uh, workers make up our union. We also represent workers that are at casinos. And so we have a, a property here in Prince George's County. Uh, MGM, that we represent those workers as well, too. So that's who we are as a union. And as political director, my goal is is sort of what I learned at Multicultural Founder, is to create a space for our workers who are thinking about their daily lives to be able to engage in politics in a way 
that we let elected officials know the laws that are they're practicing, how they affect our workers. And so I do both internal education to our members. I do external to the broader public. I engage with elected officials, both on a policy level, but also I engage on electoral level. So we, we are, we're engaged right now in midterm elections here in both the District of Columbia and Maryland. And so that's sort of my round of responsibilities that I have as political director. So we've had the pandemic and uh, the economy's changed, the workforce has changed, and uh, a lot of belief that maybe things have turned in favor of workers right now. I mean, are you seeing that? Have you seen improvements given the the competitiveness of what's going on out there and improvements or I'll say even a better understanding of what those workers do given all we've been through these last few years? I think the pandemic has accelerated that. Like, for example, our membership during the pandemic, uh, we had 98% of our workers out of work during that time. They couldn't, they couldn't work from remote from their home. They couldn't do any of that. And so what I think the pandemic has done is it has turned into workers' favor. And, and we're seeing that. We're, we're seeing that a lot. We're, we're in, in this moment where you know, you're now seeing workers who want to unionize us at, at places where we never thought that they would, you know, Starbucks, Amazon, mm-hmm. you know, Chipotle's, right? These are, these are places, REI, you know, so it's happening. It, it's happening in our industry as well as, as hotels. We're not as, as fully back as everyone else is, but we're, we're certainly seeing that. And, and I, what I say to a lot of people, we are now the popular kids because with the labor shortages now and workers, and we, we lost workers to the COVID pandemic, a number of workers. And, you know, I know other unions who represent other parts of the industry, they lost workers as well, too. Workers are now saying, no, I need more. The inflation, the pandemic, my safety, they're now in in a sort of position to bargain with the employer and employers. You know, I was just talking with someone. Employers are very aware of that now. And many people who who are against raising their minimum wages are moving their wages up to attract workers, right? And changing their benefit packets because, you know, workers, they know if they don't have those types of benefits, they'll have a shortage out there. I was at a company last week, a really progressive manufacturer, and they're starting everyone at 15, 50. If you don't have any experience and pretty generous benefits package and you go up from there. So it does seem that $15 is like the new minimum wage, even here in Erie. I don't think you can do much with, you know, less than that. And maybe it's even different there, but I just want to, you know, you hit a point about tip workers. I've always found that a curious idea that you can pay below minimum wage. And it seems like it's a United States centric approach. Do you think that that changes? I mean, should that sort of designation exist even? With the pandemic and I would, and actually yesterday I was in a, in a meeting on this topic that states are now either doing referendums or there's, there's about seven states that has no tip wages, you know, and some of them are out West, California, Oregon, those states out West. And there's some now moving on the East Coast to remove that and just bring the sub wages out and the tip wages 
out and just bring everybody up to a standard hourly rate. And so I think with the pandemic that you're going to see both industry and unions and those who support workers and economics come together and move to try to remove that. It's happening now. And my meeting yesterday was literally to talk about, is there an appetite to do it in one of my three jurisdictions as a policy matter? So I'll be interested so, yeah. to see where it goes. I lived overseas and they didn't have that. And I just know, you know, people still gave tips. They were different though. You weren't doing it in the same manner. And uh, the workers, just the waiters and waitresses, and so to speak, just got a normal wage like everyone else did. And uh, I, I suppose and you can argue uh, both points, but uh, it's interesting to hear that that's moving. Yes, it's moving. And, and, and it also has created, right, it's a space where, where we as a union have it in there because we have some tip classifications in our, in our union contract. And so it does create a conflict between workers. You know, I'm my classification, I may be the bartender or busser and we are we're all on tip wages and then the wait staff is also on just regular wages. And so it yeah. it creates some inequity and it also and especially in restaurants where typically the wait staff the people in the back of the house are of color, uh people of color. And the way staff, you know, is white. And so it then also creates a dynamic, a racial dynamic as well, mm-hmm. too, in, in restaurants. And we've seen that, too, because we represent a couple uh, high-end restaurants as well, too. So, Well, I'm going to ask you a question that I'm sure you've heard a hundred times before. And uh, people, I'm sure, challenge you on, well, geez, why, why do we need unions? And, and uh, what's your answer to that question? I answer that question is that one should one be able to collectively bargain their job, but I answer it in a way that individuals need rights, respect, and dignity on their job, and that employees should be able to come in there to, to collectively bargain together and say what's best for for all of them, right? Health and safety wise, bargain economically, also to be able to bargain what I call dignity, and, and dignity is their pension. If, if they can get a pension right after they leave this job, how are they able to live in their golden years? So for me, it is unions allow employees and workers to have a, a voice on the job. And I go back, because I, I thought about this, and I thought about it in a way for me and, and how I got there is sort of my answer that I said about MCC. It creates commonality on the job. It creates a shared space. It creates a voice on the job, right? That they can, when something is affecting them on their job, they can collectively go to their supervisor, to the owner, and say, hey, if we can continue to do this way, two people got hurt on this belt or two people uh, had a problem here, how can we solve this? And so there's, there's sort of a collective action there. So that, that's how I look at it. And, and that's how I would answer it to anyone. That's a great answer. And I like, I wrote it down, rights, respect, and dignity. I think it's a, it's a really great answer. And I, you know, I, I will tell you this, you and I were at, at an event earlier this year, you may not even know, and someone walked up and they challenged you on this question, by the way. And I, I saw you, uh, 
answer it in a very nice, uh, disarming way, but I, and uh, very eloquently. So I, I had to ask it again here because I heard you answer that <laughs> once before. You may not even remember it, uh, but we were at the campaign celebration and someone came up and said, you know, those, you, you know, so it was kind of a funny, funny exchange, you know, interesting exchange, but I appreciated how you, uh, you handled it. And I, it uh, stuck out in my mind. Well, we're, we're at the, uh, just about the end of our time here. Is there any, you know, anything you'd like to add? I give you the floor here at the, uh, the end of the interview. I certainly would like to add that unions for me are needed in a way. My, my father was in a union, right? And there are many workers who belong to unions who have sent their kids to college based on good wages and good benefits. And now where we're seeing in a country that the income inequality has just grown, that gap has grown, and it even has affected our students and having to borrow large sums of money to matriculate through college. And the way I certainly see it is the way for us to combat that is for individuals to be able to join unions and to be able to collectively bargain for good wages, good benefits, to live out their American dream of their children's doing much better than they did. And, and so that's what I certainly believe unions. And, and certainly I think that the role that I'm doing here with Unite Here is a direct result of my matriculation through Barron and my involvement there. And so I, I certainly don't take it lightly that I'm here. Uh, I'm very humble that I can impact uh, workers every single day and I can see it in a very tangible way. And so I certainly thank those learning experiences I had and those opportunities I had on campus to, to lead in a way that has landed me uh, here in this position. Well, so uh, humble and so nicely said and uh you know, a lot of truth there. And I will say, you know, from my own personal experience and yours and others, uh, a lot of us came from parents who were union workers and they had that aspiration to send us to college. And uh, it is very real and it lives on. And, you know, I just wanted to make one point before we close here too. And that is to uh, really thank you and your wife and recognize what you have done. You made a clear commitment to diversity and, uh, you uh, created this wonderful scholarships, the Sabrina and Sam Epps Educational Equity Scholarship that's benefiting our students. You continue to be involved with our students. We didn't even get into all of that. Uh, each and every day, you're mentoring our students, and uh, we greatly appreciate that. So I want to thank you for being with us here today, Sam, and uh, for all the support and wonderful things that you do, uh, not only for Barron, but for the larger community. You should be very proud of it. Well, thank you. Certainly, me and my wife, for us, much has been given to us. And so we certainly wanted to give back. And for me, it is very important for me to create that legacy line. Cause, and as you said, the interaction of Barron with, with many of the high schools there, um, but it's also to create opportunities for people who grew up on the Lower West Bayfront to be able to have an opportunity to come to Barron and to be able to experience the campus. And it is really to close that gap of Barron to the Erie community in a way that is, you know, 
you have an opportunity to grade to go to Barron, but because of the economic situation, you couldn't, that this equity scholarship would help you get there. That's what it's about for Sabrina and I, who also went and had scholarships at her historically black college and university. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much to our audience. You have been listening to Barron Talks. I'm Chancellor Ralph Ford, and our guest today has been Penn State Barron graduate, Mr. Sam Epps, graduate of our political science program and the political director of Unite Here Local 25 in the Washington, D.C. area. Thank you so much.